Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to episode 71 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad that you have joined us. Have you ever wanted to write history for young people? The idea of doing this kind of history never crossed my mind until I started spending time with elementary school teachers. Let me explain. My first book, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, Philip Vickers Fithian and the Rural Enlightenment in Early America, How's that for a mouthful? Gave me my first glimpse of the power of non-academic storytelling. As a scholarly monograph, the book covers some sophisticated ground. I write about things like rural enlightenments, the public sphere, cosmopolitanism, and local attachments. But when I spoke and continue to occasionally speak about the book before public audiences, I find that people and found that people were most attracted to the life and loves of Philip Vickers Fithian, the book subject. They wanted to hear about his patriotism, the time he spent as a college student at Princeton and how perhaps that compared to life in colleges today. His travels in the Pennsylvania backcountry, his ambitions and his firsthand accounts of Revolutionary War battles. They didn't seem to care much about the rural enlightenment or whatever contribution my work made to the larger scholarly conversation about the enlightenment in America or religion in early America. Instead, they wanted to know Philip's story. The K through eight teachers who attended my Gilder Lehrman seminar on colonial American history at Princeton University have told me on more than one occasion that the book's last chapter moved them to tears. A couple of years ago, while chatting on a bus after a long day of touring colonial era Philadelphia, they asked me if I would ever consider writing a young adult book about Philip Vickers Fithian. A young adult book. I didn't even know what that was, but I was intrigued. 
I knew nothing about this literary market, but I was eager to learn. Over the next several years, these teachers flooded my message boxes with titles of middle grade and young adult history books. A few even sent me copies of their favorites. They insisted that Fithian's story, void of all the technical language and scholarly apparatus that comes with a university press book, needed to be told in a way that their students would find interesting and compelling. Would they consider using such a book in their classrooms, I wondered? The answer, absolutely. After reflecting for a year or so about what it might take to turn The Way of Improvement Leads Home into a book for young readers, I broached the potential project with my then 21-year-old daughter, Allie, a college history and psychology major and a gifted writer. Would she be interested in co-authoring such a book? I thought Allie could take my academic prose, clear out the academic lingo, and tell the story in a way that would be compelling to a middle school or high school student. It turned out to be a perfect little project for her during a gap year between college and graduate school. Last month, she completed the manuscript, and now we're in the process of editing, refining, tightening, and generally preparing the manuscript to send it off to a literary agent. We have no idea if it is any good. And if an agent does not want to represent us or a press does not want to pick it up, we will probably just self-publish it and promote the book at the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog. We will see how it goes. So with this story as background, I thought I would devote an entire episode of the podcast to writing history for young people or young readers. Some of you may remember our guest, Tim Grove, from episode five. We talked to Tim in that episode about public history and the work of historical preservation. Since he appeared in episode five, Tim has left his job as director of education at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and has ventured out as an independent historian. He has co-authored several middle grade history books since then. And considering my current project with Ali, I wanted to pick his brain about all of this. He will be with us in a minute. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, Gretchen Adams, Mike Holwick, Justin Stoller, and Bob Beattie. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right fit for your future. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the way of improvement. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or retweet and consider a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Tim Grove is an author and educator whose writing draws from his experiences working as a public historian for over 25 years. His career has included positions at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, the Missouri Historical Society, and the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. During the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial in 2004 to 2006, Tim helped develop the national exhibition which traveled the country. He has been recognized as one of the history field's, quote, most engaging, innovative, and entrepreneurial leaders, unquote. Tim's career memoir, A Grizzly in the Mail and Other Adventures in American History, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2014, highlights some of the fun projects he has worked on over the years. More recently, he has been writing history-focused nonfiction books for ages 10 through 14. His book, First Flight Around the World, was a finalist for the 2016 YALSA Excellence in Nonfiction Award. Tim's books incorporate a variety of primary source materials and teach students and educators the historical thinking process, critical thinking, multiple perspectives, historical context, and the weighing of sources. He strives to write books that teachers will want to use in the classroom. Tim has been published in the Journal of American History, Perspectives on American History, History News, Gateway Heritage, and Air and Space Museum. And he has co-authored the Museum Educator's Manual, now in a second edition, and originated and wrote the History Bites column in History News, a quarterly publication of the American Association for State and Local History. In 2008, Tim received the Smithsonian Education Achievement Award. He currently sits on the executive committee of the History Relevance Campaign. And you can learn more about that at historyrelevance.com. His most recent book is Star Spangled, the story of a flag, a battle, and the American Anthem. Tim Grove, welcome back to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Yes, it's very nice to be back again. I enjoyed and, my last visit. Yeah, and congratulations on the publication of Star Spangled. Um, we are recording this on July 3rd, 2020. So there is a sense of patriotism in the air. I look outside my window. I see American flags in my neighborhood. So let's start with some history here. You have written this book for young readers on the Star Spangled Banner and its history. Uh, just give us some historical context here. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the song and the particular historical moment in which that song was born. So I always want to clarify that when we say the Star Spangled Banner, it's a flag as well as the anthem. I'm talking about both. Right. My goal with the book was to give a, a good historical context for the story um, the events around the Battle of Baltimore, leading up to the Battle of Baltimore, and then the results of the Battle of Baltimore, and the, of course the moment of inspiration that most people know. If they know anything about the story, they can identify Francis Scott Key as the person who penned the lyrics to the song. 
but that's usually all they know. We're lucky if they know it was Baltimore. We're lucky if they know it was War of 1812, right? I just thought it was important to give more historical context, but also I'm very much with my writing, I'm very much about giving multiple perspectives. And this the story is ripe for multiple perspectives because rarely do you ever hear a British perspective on this, yeah. um, a women's history perspective. You have Mary Pickersgill who sewed the flag. Um, so her story is, is a year before is when the flag was uh, ordered and made. And so that was a chance to add some women's history. So it's really not a book of military history only. It's women's history. It's also... Uh, I was able to find a really interesting African-American history thread um, and some other social history aspects. So, Tell us a little um, bit more about that African-American history thread. I, I was unaware of this. So I was hoping to make one of the main characters. So I have six main characters, two are British, four are American. I was hoping to make one African-American, but there's just not documentary evidence. Yeah. You know, it's, it is nonfiction. So I'm, I'm, relying on the historical sources. Um, but in my research, I came across the story of the colonial Marines, which I'd never heard of before. And the colonial Marines were a unit, a fighting unit of formerly enslaved men who were recruited by the British, came as refugees. They fled uh, where they were working, where they were enslaved and came to the British. And um, the British recruited them uh, and made them into a fighting unit called the Colonial Marines, which was not just in the Chesapeake Bay area, but there were other units around the country in North America. But so they did fight at um, Washington when Washington was attacked. And then about a month later, when in the Battle of Baltimore, they were involved and several of them lost their lives. So the Star Spangled Banner, the song, the one that we know, the one that's you know, um, been play, played before sporting events and so forth. Um, those words, for those who are unfamiliar, those words are essentially Francis Scott Key describing what? He has a unique story in that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was trying to negotiate the release of one of his friends who was captured during the attack on Washington. He was a doctor. He was a civilian. He shouldn't have been captured because he was a civilian, but he was. And so he was taken to the British ships. And Francis Scott Key ended up getting permission from the president, he had to do that, to go and try to negotiate with the top military leadership of the British. So he didn't even know if he could find their ships. He didn't know where they were in the bay, but he ended up finding them, meeting with them, and uh, negotiating and securing Beans's release. However, he was there at the wrong time because the British had just planned their attack on Baltimore and he overheard all of this planning. And so um, he thought he was going to just leave because he was successful and he would just leave and go back. But the British said, absolutely not. You know, you've heard these plans. You're our prisoner now until the, the battle occurs. And so he ended up with the front row seat to the bombing of Fort McHenry and that's kind of where the story starts in that's a way. That's what he describes in the song, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so the so, rockets, red glares, the bombs bursting in air, right? Right. So he actually wrote four verses. We only sing one verse. 
I didn't know that there was more than, I guess I knew there was more. Oh, I don't think I've ever read them before though. Yeah. Go to my website. It's on there and you can find it anywhere online. So let's talk about the flag specifically. And we'll come back to, I want to come back to the song in a second, but tell me about the flag specifically. Now I, I was looking up on, I think it was on your website, right? This flag was huge. Um, yeah, so it was about a, a quarter the size of a basketball court. And, and um, it was a standard garrison. It was called a garrison flag. It was, um, there were two flags that were commissioned to Mary Pickersgill, who was a seamstress in Baltimore, um, a garrison flag and a storm flag, which was smaller and flew during bad weather. And so um, this is the flag that we sing about that Francis Gutke saw flying over Fort McHenry. And this flag, you can, this is the exact flag or the same flag that you can go visit in uh, the Smithsonian Museum of American History. Is that right? Correct. So it's over 200 years old and it, its provenance is, they know exactly where it's been all those, all that time. Yeah. It just underwent a major conservation project in the early 2000s, about $10 million worth or more. Yeah. And it is now... Uh, conserved and preserved for future generations uh, in a climate-controlled, very dark case. They're serious about preserving this flag because it is a national treasure. Maybe it's moved, but I remember correctly, you have to go back into this kind of dark little area, you know, on the side kind of, yes, in order to see it. And it, it yes. is fairly tattered, right? Oh, yes. It's, it's very threadbare. Yeah. I, yeah. I had the fortunate opportunity. So I was on, on uh, staff there for a number of years. Right. And during that time when they took it down from, it was hanging vertically, which was a lot of stress on it. And so when they took it down to do the conservation project, they allowed staff to come in behind the barriers and get a close look. And I got within about a foot of it and I was just shocked at how threadbare it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I guess it would be right. Being that old. Right. Right. Now, back to the song, The Star-Spangled Banner, Francis Scott Key's song. Most, I think most people are probably not aware that, you know, this did not become the national anthem, you know, the day after he wrote it, right? You know, right, how, right. When, when and how does The Star-Spangled Banner become the national anthem of the United States? So he, he passed away not knowing it, was, it would be the national anthem. Right. Um, it became... It finally became official in 1931. President Herbert Hoover signed the law, signed the bill into law, and um, congressmen had worked for several decades, you know, to try to get it made official. But um, over time, it had started to become unofficial. The military, yeah. certainly during the Civil War, it was an uh, unofficial national anthem of the North. Um, and by 1917, I believe, the military bands were using it in their ceremonies as our official anthem. And then, of course, 1918 is a big year, if you like baseball, because that's the first time it was played at a baseball game, the first of the World Series that year in Chicago, the Cubs versus the Boston Red Sox. Okay. So the national, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, rather, was being played at baseball stadiums before games before it was the national anthem? Uh, I don't know how consistent it was after 1918, okay. but certainly by 1940s, it was a regular thing. Okay, okay. Um, let me ask you this. Obviously, you know, this conversation is not occurring in a vacuum, right? Uh, there are debates raging, at least for the last several years, 
over the flag, um, you know, you know, in sports where the national anthem being played, taking a knee, all of these kinds of things, you know, I'm not really particularly interested in, in uh, you kind of weighing in on one side or another, but you know, what do you hope your young readers, and this is written for middle grade readers, right? Is that fourth through eighth grade? Am I right about that? Yes. My target ages are 10 to 14, but with this book, it's probably 12 and above. And I do know that adults like it as well. It doesn't. So, so, what what do you want your readers in this particular moment to sort of take away from uh, this historical uh, story of the Star Spangled Banner? So with all my books, for kids especially, but I, I really try to, I want them to understand the complexity of the past, of history, and the importance of critical thinking, of multiple perspectives, of historical context, you know, all those historical thinking terms that we use. Um, In this case, it's certainly been pointed out a lot, the irony that the man who wrote The Land of the Free at Home of the Brave was a slave owner his whole life. And so I do bring that up uh, very pointedly because that's important for children to know. And... um, one of my surprises in, in uh, researching this book, I said I had four American characters, main characters. I did not realize that all four of them were slave owners. I was shocked to know that Mary Pickersgill, the woman who sewed the flag, ha- owned one slave. And um, even Thomas Kemp, who is, he was a shipbuilder, one of the most famous shipbuilders in Baltimore. And I use him to get at the why question, why did the British so interested in, in Baltimore? It was because of the, the shipbuilding industry was cranking out privateering vessels, which were doing major damage financially to the British merchant um, merchant ships. But he was a Quaker. I don't know how devout he was, but even this Quaker owned slaves. Yeah. So at the heart then of uh, this symbolic moment, this symbolic object of kind of patriotism and freedom, right, that we celebrate, uh, you can't avoid the kind of stain of slavery in the story, is I think is what I hear you saying. Right. No, you can't avoid it. Yeah. And it's, I think that's an important part of the story that, you know, your readers, especially your young readers need to, uh, need to realize. But uh, there were, a- there were African-Americans fighting on both sides. Right. So not just the colonial Marines, but they were also fighting with the Americans. So, you know, that's complex right there. Why, yeah, would, they yeah. want, why, would, why would they want to fight with the Americans? Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I'm still, I'm speaking here more about the kind of legacy, uh, you know, especially in light of our current debates, this provides some really interesting context uh, for thinking about that. However, one uses that context, I think it's important to get the proper, uh, the proper perspective here. Um, let's talk a little bit, Tim, about, uh, let's shift gears slightly. And let's talk a little bit about the sort of genre of this work. Now, um, you said this is for ages 10 through 14. Did I hear you correctly? Roughly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Roughly. So we're talking kind of, you know, late elementary, middle school. Is that about right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so so let's talk about writing these kinds of books for young readers. Uh, you've written several books, award-winning. You've written an award-winning book on, on uh, the first flight for this age group. Um, for those unfamiliar, maybe who... Uh, 
you know, our academics listening to the podcast or people who don't really understand the way kind of books, history books are marketed. Um, when we think about kind of a non-adult book market, and I don't even know if that's the correct word, you know, what are the different kind of categories of, of uh, you know, within that sort of larger non-adult market? You know, so yours is middle grade, right? Uh, ages right. 10 through 14, but what are some of the other ones? Well, young adult, um, there's a fine book. What is young adult? What is young adult? That would be, I think that's no, well, it starts 14, probably 14 to 19. Yeah. It's mostly high school. Okay. Um, and then you have the very young, the board books, uh, and then you have the story books. I forget the category name for the, like just under my category, middle grade is. Okay. Um, and what are let's let's take the let's take the middle grade versus the young adult. You know what are the differences between? Except you know obviously you know a a, a young adult you know probably has more narrative and is you know as my kids used to call them probably more sort of along the lines of the chapter book as they would describe them when they were little. But what is what is the difference between say a middle grade and a young adult history book? Um, I, I would say just the complexity of the story, maybe the reading level, obviously. Um, often people associate young adult with fiction. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, that's where the vampires are and the, right. the zombies and all of those. Um, Hunger Games. Um, but certainly there's nonfiction in, in young adult as well, but I don't think people... Yeah, tend, tend to think nonfiction and young adult. So a young adult book would be, you know, what would be the difference? Say uh, you've written a you've uh, you've written a uh, a university press book too, right? What would be the difference between, say, a young adult history book and kind of something that like David McCullough would write, or uh, or Doris Kearns Goodwin, or one of these famous narrative historians that find their way on the New York Times bestseller list. I would just say the complexity, because um, they they both should be strong narrative. I mean, kids' books have to have a strong, should have a strong narrative. I try to build a strong narrative and use, um, you know, tension, build character, character development, narrative arc, all of those elements of, of a good story I try to incorporate into my books. And uh, academics may or may not use those yeah. to, to varying degrees. What is... Um... Do you know off the top of your head what the sort of word count is for a book, like a, a middle grade book? Do they give you one? Oh, yeah. The contract has a word count. Mine tend to be 30 to 40,000 words. Okay. With, yeah. with uh, back matter, which includes extensive um, citations and bibliography and glossary and timeline and all of that. So when you turn in um, when you turn in a manuscript, what do you turn in? Do you do you just kind of turn in a turn in a sort of typed manuscript on a word processing file in the same way that you know another uh, an adult author would? And then who does all the formatting? Because you know children's books different, right? I mean you have images and formatting and like right. little little side side things and you know a glossary and so forth like how does that whole process work so yeah you turn in just a manuscript just like you described right um so my publisher abrams is known for really nice design and so they hire a designer who who does all that layout and the color and um i don't 
usually illustrators tend to go with younger books than middle grade, but some, some middle grade books have illustrators, but my books don't. I, I use primary source images. So I'll use maps, letters, portraits um, of, from, from history books or you know, from wherever, from collections all over the country. Um, Four Star Spangled, certainly Maryland Historical Society has a huge collection, so I mind that. Yeah. So you give but, them a manuscript then, and at what point do you uh, do you also give them then a, a, a group of images, or does that come later? Uh, it can come a little later, but certainly I'm responsible for image research and finding the images, and the editor has to prove them, obviously, but... Right, right. Um, for Star Spangled, it, the contract said uh, 35 or so images, and he was my editor was so pleased with the images that he upped it to 60. Wow, which is great, but it's also more work, obviously, for me. But and then, what kind of control do you have over that whole process once you turn in the manuscript and the images? Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of like books I've written that have images, you know, you just kind of tell them, yeah, put the picture here and they do. But this is a lot more, there's a lot more kind of artistry and formatting and so forth that goes involved. What kind of control do you have over that process? Uh, I could say where, I mean, I recommend where, where images should go and I certainly write the captions and uh, I'm a big map person. I think history books should have maps when appropriate. And so... Okay. In this book, it has three maps, and I could not find any that I really that existed that I could use. I, you know, contacted the Park Service, Fort McHenry, and I ended up drawing my own maps, which was a fun side creative project. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What is the what has been the biggest challenge for you? Now I know uh, the Grizzly in the Mail, which is your kind of memoir about. Uh, your engagement with public history over the years. I realize that's a little bit of a different kind of book. It was not a kind of narrative storytelling. Um, but what has been your, what has been the, some of the biggest struggles, challenges maybe? Um, and again, this is not the first, Star Spangled is not your first uh, middle grade book, but what have been some of the challenges and kind of going back and forth? Like so I'm, I'm thinking of a listener who maybe has written an academic book and wants to write a children's book. Um, you know, uh, wants to dabble in that perhaps, or maybe switch careers, who knows? What are some of the biggest challenges in terms of moving from kind of academic writing, like your book on museums or your book, your memoir, to, uh, and these, um, the, these uh, middle grade books that you've been writing? So this is my third one. Star Spangled is my third. I have a fourth one coming out next year. About really? Battle What's of, that on? Battle of Yorktown. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So, um, and then I think I'm going to be done with military history, but, uh, I would say, um, first of all, that there is a huge need, according to librarians and teachers I've talked to, they say there's a huge need for history nonfiction for this age group. So that's a good thing. And it's also, um, emphasized by the fact that two major publishers, Scholastic and Norton have recently started a new imprint for this age group for nonfiction. Wow. So that's a good thing. I would say the biggest challenge, of course, because it's nonfiction, is identifying a story that can be a strong narrative and has interesting characters because you can't change it. You know, it's not fiction. Yeah. So you have to have interesting characters built in. 
you have to have source materials, preferably from the characters where you can add, add, add their voice, their original voice. So you have to have good quotes that, that aren't too complicated for kids to understand. Um, so it's really, I think one of the biggest challenges is choosing the topic. And it also has to resonate with kids. It has to be something that teachers will find interesting that has a wide, um, is attractive to a wide national audience if you're going with trying for a big publisher. So all of those factors kind of add together. Yeah, so, so um, when so, you think, yeah, go ahead. So to get to your, your question of academics who might be interested, I do notice that there are books out there for sure that are being adapted, that are written by academics that are being adapted to this age group. Um, an example would be Never Caught by Erica Dunbar, yeah. which is, I don't know if you know that one about- I do, um, Own a Judge. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed they came out with a middle grade version of, of that recently. Yeah. Um, I, my guess is it's, it's a challenge, I would guess, for academics to write for that different audience. I'm not sure if sometimes they work with, with another writer right. to help them, but- yeah. um, it's about shorter sentences. It's about um, vocabulary, but um, helping students identify the word. I mean, even though I have a glossary with every book, I also try to have clues in the sentence for what a, a word is that they might not know what it means. So, yeah. Now you mentioned um, you mentioned Tim. Uh, your your book is published with Abrams. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming that's one of the leading publishers in this area. Yeah, it's a leading, sure. Yeah, who? What are some of the big names? You mentioned Scholastic, you know. Uh, Scholastic Norton. Yeah. Um, I'm blanking, but you know all the big publishers. And who who do these books? Um, how are these books marketed and sold? Are they marketed to school libraries? Are they marketed to individual kids, you know, readers? Uh, you know, I remember as a kid going to the book fair, right, and buying books. Do they still have those? You know, um, and then what role do you play in the marketing of your books? Uh, they're marketed far and wide. They certainly work with Barnes and Noble and Amazon and, um, Certainly, for my books at least, a major audience is librarians and teachers. Um, it also, it, it, in some ways, it depends on the price point of the book. Mine's hardback at the moment, so it's it's a little more expensive than yeah. some, but um, just because it's full color and um, so yeah, all the all the vehicles that you can imagine, they they use. I mean. So it's marketed much like any other book. In yeah, any other book. But there's yeah. no kind of special pipeline to kind of schools and teachers and so forth. Uh, no, I mean, they certainly want to review in school library journal and, right. and uh, things like right. that. But now, and Kirkus, 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 all the, all the major reviewers yeah. that are, are weighing in on kids books as well. So, so walk us through the process, right? Um, 
let's just say, I mean, it doesn't have to be an academic who wants to do this. Let's just say there's someone out there listening, you know, one of our listeners who, who thought about, you know, they've never written a book before in their life. They want to, they want to, uh, uh, write a, a history book, um, for middle grade or maybe young adult or something like that. Um, walk us through the process, right? So you mentioned you come up with an a good idea, a uh, compelling idea, one that's going to attract attention, right? A good story and so forth. Um, you feel like you've done that. You feel like you've wrote it all out. You've, you've got a 30,000 word or so manuscript in front of you. Um, what do you do next? So obviously it's risky to spend a lot of time writing a book and, and not know if you will actually get a contract. Right. So the good, the good thing with nonfiction is you don't have to write the whole book. Okay. Um, unless you feel really driven, um, you can write a proposal and two to three chapters, sample chapters, and that's okay. all you need to get a contract. And then, um, so what is a proposal? A proposal just describes the book, the audience, the market. You have to do market research. What else, what's on the market that's similar? How is it different from what's on the market? Um, it, you know, publishers are risk averse, so they want to know. They're comfortable if there's other things like it on the market, but it can't be too much like something else that's on the market. So, okay. so you uh, have to have a good sense of the market then. You do. You do. Like my first flight around the world book was a very risky, in some ways it was risky because it's a story that hasn't been told before. And so yeah. they couldn't compare it to anyone else, but they knew from the same time period, 1920s, Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh are popular. So, right. Right. So you, so you, um, you write a proposal. Do you have, so you don't have to have the whole book finished. You write a proposal and then you um, send it uh, to where, who do you send it to, to, to get a contract? Well, it depends. A lot of it depends on what your goals are with it. If, if your goals are to get a, snag a big publisher, which is obviously very competitive, then you need an agent for that to, okay. to, to gain access to the top, um, publishers, you need an agent. And how do you find an agent? So you have Works to, in this area, you have to send query letters out to agents. There's lots of um, sites online that list agents and what their specialties are, what they, what they're looking for. You know, they might special in children's books or they might love mysteries. They might love romance, whatever. They all have specialty areas. Um, and so you just start sending queries out, which is a query is just a one page. I have this book. Are you interested in seeing my proposal? And if they are, then you send your proposal. So now, so when, you're look, when you're looking for an agent, you're looking for someone who's going to you're 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 presenting this book, right? You're not. Are you selling them your career? You know, or you know, are you selling them? You know, or is it just one? You know, here's a book. You know, and and you're, you're giving, you know, this is the book I want to write. And then are you kind of signing on then for life with this agent or no, 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 you, you know? can, you can separate any time, but you do sign a contract with the agent. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, e each agent is, is different, but quite, I've, I've read that quite a few are looking for potential for future. I mean, they're in it, not because they like you, but because you can make money for them. Right. Um, so if they see that you have potential to do more books in you, you have, you have other ideas, 
then that's probably more attractive, I would say. Do do are there agents? I'm thinking now here of sort of academic writers or people who write adult history. You know, do the, the agents sort of specialize in uh, middle grade or young adult? Are there agents who kind of straddle kind of adult history and children's and you, young people's history? There are some. I'm sure that straddle them, but um, they tend to specialize in children's or adult. Okay. Tell me a little bit if you're if you're willing. How did you go about the process of you finding your own agent? Uh, well, mine is a very uh, atypical, not not typical story. Um, my agent came to me um, because of my first flight book being a finalist for this big award okay. um, that started that process. I did have an agent way back for my Grizzly in the Mail book, which you mentioned. Yeah, um, but. We ended up parting ways um, after a year because I, I wasn't get, he wasn't getting traction. So, if the agent came to you for the uh, um, for the uh, book on um, after he after he she he he yes. the first in flight uh, book, how did you get that one published? So I was working at the National Museum of America. Uh, sorry, the National Air and Space Museum. Okay. Um, and um, so that was a project of the museum. And they had just done a children's book with some of my colleagues, and they were happy with the experience and the product. And so they were, they put a pitch out there for more project ideas. And so I was working on an exhibition that uh, included the story of the first flight around the world. And I just thought it was such a compelling story for kids. And I just decided to uh, write up a proposal and they accepted it. And that kind of started it all. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so, um, so you send your book to an agent. What if the agent likes it? What happens next? Well, then they'll um, ask you to sign a contract with them and then they will help you mold it a little more and they will identify the editors that they think would be most receptive to it. And um, if they're a good agent, they should be very transparent in their process and let you know where they are at in the process and who they're sending it to and what the response has been. And you can imagine it's, it can be a long process. Yeah. When you say long, how long? Uh, it can go on. Uh, well, you mean from, pitching an idea to a final product or just yeah, uh, getting or maybe just just sort of pitching an idea to an agent uh from that point until the the contract is secured with the publisher uh, i i would say i don't know it's hard to answer that i mean it can vary from one year to two years okay. sure um it took me eight months to get a signed contract even though i had the offer for for my most recent book. So, so, so you have, so you, you send it to an agent, the agent then sort of, uh, sort of carries this out for you. And then you're working with the publisher. And once you, once you establish that, you get an editor at the publisher and then you move into some of the things we talked about before about the conversations about word count and images and those kinds of things. Right. Right. So in my case, I have all three of my kids' books and the fourth one too has been with the same publisher. So I've worked with the same agent or sorry, the same editor. So that's, oh, that's been a, it's been a help in many ways. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Good. So, so it's, it's, it sounds like it takes some time, but again, I've been so specific and kind of breaking this down um, because I, I just want my audience to be able to know, you know, what are the various steps? Everything seems so mysterious when it comes to kind of my agent did this for me and that for me. Um, you know, how do you go about, you know, getting uh, your work in front of the people that you want to see it? So this is this has actually been very, very helpful in terms of thinking about um, this. In some ways, it's very similar to the way in which uh sort of adult history writers operate with trade presses and so forth. But, uh, but it seems like there's a lot of similarities between the way it works with the younger, uh, the younger reader books as well. And some agents are more hands-on than others. Some, some just negotiate the deal and then they kind of step back. Okay. Um, they, they, they advocate you advocate for you at, at various points along the way. Um, yeah. So I got assigned a publicist, a marketing team for this book. Um, the agent stays involved in that too and, and offers suggestions. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, we were talking a little bit before we, uh, we started recording. Um, you know, so once the book is out, uh, you, have a, you have publicists, you have people working for you. What is your role in the, in the sort of public, the, the public uh, or the publication, not the publication, the publicizing of the, uh, of the book. So it's huge. Um, I think there's a misconception out there that the big publishers give you a marketing or publicist and then you don't have to do much or you'll go on a tour. It's just not that way at all. They, they send have... you on a tour and you stay in luxury hotels. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, No. And, and for kids books, it's also different. I mean, you don't, um, normally I would be doing libraries. Um, I had several programs scheduled and then the virus came along and Nixed all that, of course. Um, I norm go ahead, go ahead. So libraries, schools, sometimes I like to go to book festivals. So I was in the process of applying for lots of different book festivals around the country, and of course, a lot of them aren't going to happen now. Um, but I also try to. I mean, the publicist gets me on podcasts. Um, I just did the Big Fib, which is a great kids. Uh, radio uh, kids podcast that teaches critical thinking. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but. Yeah, not until I got your email about five minutes before you came on. So I'll have to. It's a, it's a really fun, it's a fun show. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the coronavirus, the COVID-19 has, has definitely forced you to rethink how you publish or how you promote your, your books, obviously. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I will do bookstore appearances as well. Like, like you did with your book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this has been really, really informative, Tim. Um, uh, not only for the material related to uh, Francis Scott Key and the Star Spangled Banner, uh, but also uh, in terms of the process of of thinking about how to write. Um, one of the things that I I mentioned uh, in the introduction, I think I told you this on an email when we were setting this up. Um, my daughter and I are trying to. Uh, turn my Philip Vickers Fithian book into a, uh, I think we're going to shoot for more of a young adult uh, book. And um, so, so I, I would be lying if I said a lot of these questions are also yeah. not kind of personal questions that I had about all of this. But again, I do occasionally get questions from people about how to pursue publishing and so forth. So I think this is helpful as well. So I would say the, the question you need to always start with is why sh who's my audience? Why should they care about this topic? Yeah. And, um, you know, if it's 
if it takes place on the East Coast, why should a kid in California care about the topic? Right. Um, how does it connect to broad, broader topics in American history? And where does it fit into the classroom? If, if you want teachers to embrace it, then they have to yeah. find, find connections with their curriculum. Yeah, well, like I said in the beginning of the episode before you came on, um, I, I had never even thought about writing, you know, anything other than a kind of adult adult book. I've thought about writing sort of trade history for adults, but never, never for children or, or, or young people until I started hanging out with elementary school teachers in my Gilder Lehrman seminar that I do on colonial America every year. And, you know, I would assign the Fivian book and, mm -hmm. you know, it seemed like all they wanted to talk about was his love affair and his comments on the American revolution. And I'm like, no, there's sophisticated ideas here, right? What about the, you know, rural enlightenment and all these other things. And, um, and finally they told me, you know, they, they strongly encouraged me to, to do this, uh, you know, more young adult book that they could use in the classroom. So would that be something that, you know, would go into maybe a proposal, you know, would I, would I talk about these testimonials and why I think it might. Oh yeah, definitely. If you have teachers that are saying that, then I would get quotes from them for sure. Yeah. yeah and that, that goes a long way. Um, I would just say that we need more books, history books, nonfiction, like I said, but I think I would love to see more trained historians, public historians and academic historians trying to write books for this audience because the, the people that tend to write are, are not trained historians and they, yeah, it, I think you can tell, hopefully you can tell. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully someone can tell that my books are written by a trained historian. Yeah. Well, the book is uh, star spangled banner. I'm sorry. No. Star Spangled right, right, is the title of the book. And what is the subtitle? Uh, the Story of a Flag, a Battle, and the American Anthem. And it's published by Abrams. It just came out. The author is public historian, author, writer extraordinaire, Tim Grove, uh, formerly at the Smithsonian. Um, Tim, how can people find more out about you, uh, your work, what you're doing? Uh, my website is timgrove.net. Timgrove.net. And, and they can learn more about your other books there as well? Yes. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Tim. This has been one of the more enlightening episodes uh, for me. I hope it's been an enlightening episode as well for our listeners. I think it will be. Good. And, uh, we appreciate you taking some time here on uh, this official holiday, July 3rd, I think, right, to talk with us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Have a good day.
Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Tim Grove. Uh, he is becoming one of uh, our leading writers of middle school history. He's humble. He probably wouldn't admit that, but um, really some great stuff. I kind of really wanted to push him on the details of all of this. Uh, you know, how do you get started? What do you have to do? You know, how does it work with the agent, with the editor, with the publisher? So maybe some of you out there, you know, have a, have a story that you want to tell from the past, a nonfiction history story. Maybe you write well and you want to get it out there and, and uh, maybe uh, either start a career or on the side uh, become a young adult or middle grade or even children's history writer. Uh, hopefully this episode will give you some uh, insight into how to think about getting started in such a in such a career um so i hope you enjoyed it uh, and again I, I i learned a whole lot uh from from tim's work get out there buy a copy of his book for your kids uh his uh his new book star spangled uh, has now been out i think for about a month or so uh, and uh you know keep an eye on him timgrove.net uh, to find out more of what he's doing he's a very creative historian very creative guy uh who's whose career has intersected in all kinds of different ways with the study of the past and the bringing of the past to public audiences. Uh, so again, uh, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, head over to our Patreon page and support the podcast. Uh, if you have the inclination, give us a share, give us a retweet. Uh, and in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a block dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on this network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Ron Schooler, and Bob Eady. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right fit for your college future. The podcast was recorded to you via Zoom. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overhold. Many thanks to our guest, our studio producer, Casey Lehman, and your host, John Fee.